think also Bear was really self-aware that when he was working in music, that it was about this evolution of sound. So trying to learn about how to produce sound was a passion of his, right? So he had a very, one of the first hi-fi systems that came out and people may have read about how with the Grateful Dead, he built like this first PA from his personal hi-fi system and it weighed a huge amount and they had to make a sled for it and drag it around and everyone hated it, (laughs) but they loved it, right? They loved the sound, but they hated the having to move the system. So when they would go into venues, they'd be rebuilding the speakers and putting new capacitors in and they'd be thinking about how new microphones could capture sound and they develop foldbacks so that art, you know, artists could hear themselves. So he was really passionate about recording those performances and even rehearsals and talked with artists and said, hey, we should be recording this. Hey, it's the official tapes. This is a Grateful Dead radio program where we highlight the official releases from the Grateful Dead and we take it to the airwaves. The radio program airs on about 80 radio stations around the globe. Every so often we catch up with somebody and uh, make an interview out of it. And we post that interview over at our website, officialtapes.com. That's where you can also stay in touch with us. I'm Corey, and it's always good to catch up with uh, the Owsley Stanley Foundation. I'm Starfinder Stanley. I'm the president of the Owsley Stanley Foundation and um, Bear's son. And I'm Hawk, and I am the executive producer for releases. But uh, I want to introduce Redbird. I'm Redbird Ferguson, and I'm a founding board member of the Owsley Stanley Foundation. And currently in my role, I am the chief financial officer and one of the co-producers on the releases and in particular on this Sing Out release. Yeah, you know, it's really cool. I didn't realize um, Redbird was at this concert. As the voice of Pete Bell, he's also with the Owsley Stanley Foundation. You can uh, re-listen and uh, catch up with all the interviews that we've done with the Owsley Stanley Foundation. This isn't the first time that we've uh, featured them. On the official tapes, you can now get previous programs at officialtapes.com. Here's more with Pete Bell and the rest of the Owsley Stanley Foundation. She has some clear memories of the show. I'm also Starfinder's sister, and Owsley Stanley's bear, my father, is my dad. Redbird is family. She's our, our dear sister, without whose input this organization wouldn't exist. She also has just some really cool stories about Bear, as you can imagine, but they're slightly different than Starfinder's stories. So it's just a lot of fun to get a second take from her. She's an important voice. She's on Australian time, but I'm glad she can make it work. I live in Australia, and I currently work as an archaeologist with Indigenous communities in Australia in the far North Queensland and throughout the Pacific. Because of time and space and geographic location, uh, hasn't always had the opportunity to be a part of our, our first releases, and, and we're thrilled that moving forward, that's going to change. The Owsley Stanley Foundation is going to give us a rundown on their latest release, Sing Out. They're also going to talk about the legacy of Owsley Stanley throughout the interview, and then also doing a little bit of reflection as well. This is their 10th release, so looking back on the 10 releases and also looking back on the 10 years of the Owsley Stanley Foundation. It's the official tapes. This is our folk release. We called it Sing Out because it's a sort of play on Sing Out for Sight, which was the event that SEVA hosted. Well, as you know, we're all here tonight to support SEVA, which uh, is working on the cause of particularly unnecessary blindness in the third world countries. We support their organization and their mission incredibly. As you work through the liner notes, there's a series of eyes 
that are representative of the health of the eye, which is related to the mission of SEVA. The artist is Susan Archie, and Susan Archie did our Johnny Cash cover, which was really just a gorgeous piece of work through and through. And we wanted to work with her again, and she really told a narrative. So it's a great bit of visual storytelling. So in addition to being beautiful, it ties together the music and the purpose of Seba's mission. And that's one of the reasons we've written that in the liner notes too. We really hope people will go out and learn about Seva if they don't already know about them and their mission. I think it's also fair to say that there's a lot of mutual respect and trust and understanding between OSF and Seva. You know, our father was really committed to that um, mission as well. So not just working at this show, but then I, I traveled with him through Kathmandu as well. And it was something that he was really interested in. Our hearts are in the same place. And I think we very much align in that regard. And they do very much appreciate what we're doing. It's definitely something Seva is very close to our heart and we support their mission. And we hope other people will go out and do so as well. And that this release does for them what it did for them back then, which is to raise awareness and engagement and that people can support that cause. When we decided we wanted to do this, we went to Wavy first and talked to him about it. Welcome. Welcome to Sing Out for Sight. Redbird and I, as kids, went to Camp Winter Rainbow. Camp Winter Rainbow is a circus camp in Northern California run by Wavy Gravy uh, and the hippies. (laughs) Wavy has been part of our lives since we were we were babies the guy who runs the stagehands his name is danny ferrer he called me up a couple days ago he says you know wavy you started out with a simple acoustical concert you got yourself a mini woodstock we hope that people who listen to this album and who read the notes also look into seva and look at uh, all the good that they're doing and, and help support their their mission that's really important to us well here we are we get to uh we get to have some fun you get to have some fun and a whole lot of people in in uh in a faraway country get to benefit by it i think that's nice we called it sing out because it's a sort of play on sing out for sight which was the event that seva hosted when we were first starting putting this thing together it was a simple acoustical concert you know we really wanted to honor that with the release in 1981 it was the second uh, sing out for site benefit concert. You know, that's one of the things that Seva has always had foundationally is their benefit shows to raise money. Welcome. Welcome to Sing Out for Sight. They are really blessed to have the support of so many amazing artists who come to them and support their cause and, and raise their voices to help raise money to, to preserve vision. The eyes. Yes, that's what it is. The eyes have it. It's actually one of the, the latest recordings in the archive. Yeah, it was the last recording that he made of any member of the Grateful Dead. One of Bear's last mixing sound at, at a big venue. Of course, Bear took a, a famously difficult venue and turned it into your living room. And it's been really rewarding to hear. This was a venue that was extremely challenging to get good sound in. He likened it to you know, having a concert inside a, a garbage can. It was just tinny and echoey. When you go somewhere where they don't do it right, you almost can see the mistake in the air. You can hear it, feel it, see it. The tale of this concert was one of his favorite stories to tell about, you know, the vindication of his approach to mixing sound. You know, Bear was really self-aware that when he was working in music, that it was about 
this evolution of sound. So trying to learn about how to produce sound was a passion of his. It was a volunteer run show. So all the musicians were volunteers. All of the equipment was volunteered. They reached out to Bear and asked him if he would run sound. And he was happy to volunteer. But when he showed up in the music system, all the speakers um, was being donated as well. And the you know usually it was ultrasound, which brought the system, but they had other obligations that night. And so they had to source the system from somebody who they didn't usually work with. And when Bear showed up, it had already been loaded on stage and set up in two piles on the left side of the stage and on the right side of the stage. And, and you know. <laughs> Even at home, the home television speakers were set up that way. And the home record system and that were you know cds or and he was always into like what's the latest way we can listen to music but he was meticulous about even the speakers for the television you know it was a it was a it was a beautiful it was a incredible listening experience and he said no, no 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 can't do this we have to you know move the speakers i want them all over here on stage left just one stack i don't want a split stack i mean one of the problems with being one of bear's kids is if i go to a live show and they set up the two speakers on each side in a small venue and it's combing it drives me completely nuts and the guy that brought the system looked at him like he was crazy and he said no <laughs> we're not moving the system it's a, this is the way we set it up it's going to stay this way and in the entertainment industry there's a lot of there's a lot of turf wars too right bear tried to convert <laughs> everyone he talked to and not everybody wants to change the way they approach sound the way you do it and how you do it. And that's why you get hired to do the job is because of your version of, of how you do it and your relationships with people. So if you change that or you, you know, that can be a, a threat to the sense of like, well, are people still going to want me to do what I do? Because now I do it the way he does it. Why would they hire me? So when somebody comes and questions your, your fundamental understanding of um, you know, how things should be put together, a lot of times that doesn't sit well with people. People become invested in their opinions. I think today's political climate is a good example of that, right? Of how even when someone's trying to explain to you perhaps something that may be factually different to what you understand or feel that you, you know, we people become really invested in that. There wasn't a ton of time and Bear realized that he was not going to make headway with this argument. So he said, fine. You know, and they ran the sound check and all of that. And then and there's a lull between the sound check and when the show goes on. And when everybody had kind of cleared out, Bear went into the wires feeding the system into the soundboard and unhooked the wire that fed one side of the stage, the stage right wire, and then put it back together. Bear was building and changing things. And so he often had consolidate a lot of different kinds of information from different places. And so when the show started, the, the guy that brought the system came running up all in a lather, you know, that half the system wasn't working. And Bear said, I don't know. There's no time. I can handle it. I'll just work with what we've got. And so as a result, I think he brought a really different kind of experimental mind to the way he did things. And he was never like, okay, that works. That's good enough. Let's just do that. You know, he was always going, you know, that's good, but I still think I could make this better. And so he ran the system with, with half the system, you know, because he figured it would get much better sound with half the speakers than, you know, using all of them with that split right, left. And 
this absolutely transformed the sound in the room. And so, you know, in this garbage can of a venue. Sonic Journal had a purpose, and the purpose was for Bear to innovate his sound systems. He got really, really, really nice sound. They happened to have been beautiful recordings, you know, perfect recordings of that night. What a night this has been. Beautiful night. And it, to the point that the musicians were commenting from stage, wow, it sounds great in here. Right, this concert, I don't know about you, but the energy that, that I think a lot of us up here have felt is very magical. It's almost like the, a new beginning of something that's going to keep growing. And I want to thank you all for coming. And then after the show, you know, while everybody was distracted, he went back and soldered the the wires back together and put it together. And the guy came up like, oh, I'm going to figure out what happened. He's like, I don't know, it's working now. <laughs> Perfect recordings of that night that help you hear what the hall would have sounded like that night. He had done battle with this venue and lost, right? And he didn't like losing. But that's how he was. And I guess we grew up with him always. That's the way we were. He talked to us about music. So like, that's the way we understood it, too. He wanted to figure out how to make it sound good. And, you know, he took the lessons that he learned. I think one of the things that did drive people a little nuts with him sometimes is that he was constantly changing things, right? He was constantly and building new microphones and switching things out. It was one of the later shows that he recorded. So he had his system worked out. He knew what he wanted. That also, you know, there's a, that temperament thing of people... Um, wanting to be able to set something in motion and have it be repeatable and know that they can rely on it instead of having something constantly changing you know and he's very much an experimenter and an inventor and so he was constantly kind of changing things and trying to improve things which in retrospect we can look back on and say that is an amazing thing look at the results that we get it really proves out in this recording it's just a beautiful beautiful sounding recording it's something over the course of uh 10 volumes now that we're trying to help people understand what a sonic journal is and how that's different from other types of recordings. I think it's also important to reference Bear's production value. They are a different sort of artifact than other types of recordings. And it's a complicated story. And so we I think of the liner notes as this serial where in slow motion, we're telling the story of what that means. There's a lot of subtlety and there's a lot of complication. It takes a lot of attention span to care about it, which is why it's we're sort of trickling it out in the context of, of each recording. Bear was a producer. Bear produced these recordings, and they are a reflection of all the effort that he put into building the sound systems and making the mix for those nights. There are some, a little bit of heartbreak here and there in the recordings in that some of the reels had some tape shedding. And we pay for the coal that we burn. And the example where it happened is, is even more heartbreaking because it is an absolutely gorgeous version of 2020 Vision uh, performed by Kate Wolf. They're up the trees that never return. Well, there's power for free in the warm sun that shines. It's 2020. Walking round blind. You get the point. The whole aspect of you know why we started 
the nonprofit to preserve these reels was in part because there's this ticking talk of, you know, we have to get all these reels transferred into a more permanent media because the physical tapes are deteriorating. And over time, those physical iron oxide particles that embed the sound on the tapes start to flake off. And when they fall off, the music's gone. Right in the middle, you have this ugly, gnarly dropout that, you know, really is just, it's such a beautiful song and that beautiful voice. And all of a sudden, it's gone. It's an unfinished life that I find lies before me An open-ended dream that I don't want to wait I've crossed so many rivers On these recordings, one of the reels was one of the, the most damaged reels that we have and you can, you can hear the effect of those missing iron oxide particles. And some of it you can kind of fuzz out in processing, um, but we left an example. I couldn't think of a better way to underscore the importance of the mission than by having everybody experience that. You said to me, I cannot make you happy like a wounded bird. You must find the strength to fly. Time can paint the treetops with colors of the rainbow, but you cannot find the end, no matter how you try. I mean, we could have, uh, we could have patched that, we could have taken out that chorus. There are lots of stitching that we could have done uh, to make it a more seamless user experience. But we thought it was an important part of the story to be able to tell for why we do what we do. I think that in the days of like post-production processing and AI and all these things that can make everything look like filters, right? That we can all make things look beautiful and perfect. But the reality is that when you're trying to preserve documentary history, which is essentially what this is, it's audiovisual history, that there are going to be imperfections and understanding why it's so important and so crucial and so time sensitive. It goes to that core reason for why it was so important to raise money and why all the donations that people have so generously given the foundation to help move this forward have been so crucial in keeping us from losing and having that music, even if it was recorded in such pristine fashion, you know, if the tapes deteriorate, it's going it, to, you know, you lose the quality. I mean, a lot of these tapes are, are actually over that 50-year period that they tend to survive for. Luckily, the older tapes are the better quality tapes. The, the production values change in terms of how tapes were manufactured. So our oldest tapes seem to be surviving the the best versus these younger tapes. It's educating, but it's also bringing you inside. It's almost like coming behind the scenes of a production, right? Come inside and see what's really happening. Come inside and hear what's really happening to these tapes and see how incredible these records are and recordings and these artists' performances and yet see how fragile they are.
when we preserve a reel, we, we often post a photograph of the box on Facebook. So if you go and take a peek, some of them, there's a little annotation that will say tails out. So when you store the tape, you know, if you picture looking at a reel side to side, most of us know cassettes, right? You can see one bit of tape is sitting next to the other. And when you store it just sitting there, one layer can magnetize the other layer. And so a little bit of the information from the song can show up on a different part of the, of the track. Well, if you store them what's called tails out, if that sort of bleed through happens, that echo of um, an earlier part of the tape shows up on a later part of the reel. But if you store them in the reverse order, you get this weird thing, which is a pre-echo. You hear information before the song happens. And you usually don't encounter the post-echo because the music is playing over it. But you have to have, a, in order to be able to hear it at all, you have to have a moment of complete silence. And it's rare to get that in a concert hall. And so I'm like, I'm listening to this under the headset. And I'm like, where is this coming from? It's like a form of time travel. When first I came to San Francisco, oh, I was country all the way. You, you listen and you hear a little bit of what would have come um, later in the show. You, you come early. So it's a rare version of a, uh, of a pre-echo. Her bridges make a magic circle. Far brighter than a wedding ring To hold my heart In San Francisco She fairly makes me burst to sing I love the streets of San Francisco I love the lousy human race Bear, of course, spurred his reels properly almost all the time, so an unusual artifact. Barefoot and crazy in Hashberry, we marched for peace. We made the park a living room. I love the streets of San Francisco. And so that was another aspect that we wanted to, to call out in the listening experience, uh, an artifact or an anomaly in the, you know, that is just a, a vestige of the way the tape was stored in this instance. And that's what that means, that they were wound or rewound properly. I'd trade them all for jazz and drinking and conversations at 12 Adler Place. Welcome. Welcome to Sing Out for Sight. When we were first starting, putting this thing together, it was a simple acoustical concert, you know? There's something pretty special and, and, and rare in each one of the sets uh, that you, this is the first time that the audience may have ever had a chance to, to hear this unless you were there that, that night. Well, as you know, we're all here tonight to support SEVA, which uh, is working on the cause of particularly unnecessary blindness in the third world countries. SEVA, you know, when it first got started and, and it was you know, a bunch of hippies getting together trying to uh, raise money to preserve vision in the third world in India and Nepal and these countries that were uh, afflicted by this you know, reversible blindness that would, you know, they, they would go off uh, on their um, 
pilgrimages to India with the gurus and see all of these older blind folks being led around by the kids because they all had suffered from these reversible diseases and realized that with a small amount of money, they could sponsor surgeries and restore vision to these people and have such a profound beneficial effect on their lives. So they came back to California and started this nonprofit to fund that and pulled the musicians in to help raise money. Somebody who's always around when there's a good cause, make welcome, please, Berkeley's own fantasy recording artist, Country Joe McDonald! Country Joe, through his entire career, was carrying on this tradition of folk music. And you look at the, the repertoire that he played on this night in this concert in 81, from O Susanna to his, his updated version of Feel Like I'm a Fixin' to Die Rag. One, two, three, what do we fight for? Don't ask me, I don't give a damn. The next stop is Afghanistan. And it's five, six, seven, up and up early gates. Well, there ain't no time to wonder why whoopee, we all gonna die. Now come on, Wall Street, don't be slow. I man this war a go-go. There's plenty good money. You know, he dedicates it to Ronald Reagan and he updates it to include, you know, the verses about Afghanistan. And then to the opening opening number, Save the Whales, is fundamentally a protest song, you know, right in the middle of sort of that environmental Greenpeace movement. He basically writes a modern sea shanty, which is, again, purely out of the folk tradition. And it's a great way to set off not only that night, but to really drive home the notion of these artists are demonstrating their folk chops from set to set to set. We can't do it, folks. We can't do it. We're, we're running this like a Swiss watch tonight. Sure, he deserves five encores, but we can't do it because we have a long and amazing show and we got to pull it off within a particular time frame. So I appreciate, I appreciate your cooperation along those lines. This equipment is now going to totally disappear, if I'm not at all mistaken as you can see before your very eyes, and we're getting set up. It was a, a group, a gathering of folk artists playing acoustic music. When I think about the quickest way to summarize what this release means musically, this is folk music played by uh, some of our heroes, important figures both in the Bay Area and the broader music scene, uh, playing this music making it sound like you're living well that's the truth but while you're awake you don't have to be alone and i'd like to point out that i'm not alone this is my friend mitch greenhill uh, i'm real happy to have with me playing again well our interactions with mitch greenhill go go way back because he manages uh doc watson and he was instrumental in getting the approvals in place for our very first release and he also has has gone on to to manage rosalie's estate as well I got no money. Rosalie Sorrell, go for it. Um, so this is a very rare moment. For starters, Rosalie Sorrell's uh, song, 12 Adler Place. All you have to know about this is that my favorite safe place in the city is Specs, which is a bar. I'm a creature of the night, and I love to go to uh, that place because it's uh, congenial and safe and full of... Uh, fascinating people and faces, and it's run by a decent human being. The address of the place is 12 Adler, and it's across the street from Vesuvio's and City Lights on Columbus, right off of uh, Broadway. 
I hope you don't kill me for telling you all. <laughs> this is the only known live recording of that song. It's an original composition. She sings it a cappella. It's about her love of San Francisco and all of its quirky craziness. So that's, that's one piece that is going to be revealed to the world for the first time. I'd like to do one together. I think with this many people here for the same reason tonight, we could make some really nice music. Kate Wolf's Let's Get Together. It's a song that she's played fairly often, you know, live, but there's only one other live recording that I'm aware of, uh, Evening in Austin, and singing it with Wavy Gravy, of course. This is the, the only known uh, version of Wavy Gravy. It's a song I'm sure that most everybody here knows, and if not, you can learn it fast. It's a Dino Valenti tune from a long time ago, but it's just as good now as it ever was. So that's also a, a rarity. And then you've got uh, Bob Weir and Jerry Garcia. We started out kind of like this. Went on to become the Rocky and Bullwinkle of rock and roll. It's rare that you get them in a folk show. You know, and, and I think they're um, responding to who they're on the bill with. And um, so you get this folk iteration of the Grateful Dead. They're responding to Odetta. They're responding to Kate Wolf, to Rosalie, to Country Joe. And so that inflects her choice of material. Jerry Garcia, Bob Weir, Captain John Kahn, Mickey Hart, Billy Kreutzman. So this was a. Uh not actually the complete Grateful Dead. This is, it was billed as Jerry Garcia and Bob Weir, and they brought Mickey and Billy along with them. So that's four members of the Grateful Dead at that time. And Jerry brought John Kahn on bass, his longtime associate in the Jerry Garcia band. And they played right before the set break. And that was because Jerry had a gig at the Stone across town with John Kahn. So they performed just before the set break. And then the two of them left. And then Kate, well, actually it was Rhythm Devils came out on stage after the set break. Well, I hope that um, I hope that everybody also really enjoys the Rhythm Devils because it's one of my little personal tidbit favorites in there um, with Mickey and 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 Billy and because I, I was at a number of their shows with Bear during this period of time. So this was a, an interesting iteration uh, of the Grateful Dead with four members, four out of six members on stage playing largely a Grateful Dead repertoire. I think we can deal with it. Folks, listen to it and report back that, yeah, they feel like they're sitting right there on the stage. I think we can deal with it. When you look at the narrative arc of our releases and you look at the range of musical idioms that we've explored, uh, whether it's Indian classical or Irish traditional or pure psychedelic uh, exploratory like the Yorma and Jack album or psychedelic country with new writers, this one is our folk album. A couple of things that, that we've done really well reflecting back We've picked diverse artists. The narrative that we're trying to create is showing. Yeah, that storytelling of um, the narrative of people and the range of music that Bear worked in. He loved music of all kinds. It wasn't just the Grateful Dead all the time. It wasn't just the psychedelic 60s all the time. Our very first album, uh, the Doc Watson album, got reviewed in Stereophile. So this was right out of the bat. We were very proud of that. And it was a glowing review. It was about the performance as well as the sound quality. 
was about how rarely those two things come together. And reviewers always need to find, you know, something critical to say. And so the tailing thought was, I really like this, but there are very few organizations um, that promise a series and deliver it. So I'll wait to see if, if indeed this becomes a series. And so looking back 10 years in to, since our founding, it really has turned into a series. I think it's a moment to kind of look back and say that Verisonic Journals is, is actually a, a, a thing. I think we've done that very, very well. And I think that we have a devoted fan base that are not necessarily familiar with all the artists on every one of our releases. And it's one of the things that I'm most proud of is that we're hearing more and more feedback of, I don't know who this artist is, but if OSF says I should listen to it, I'm going to get it and I'm going to check it out. We each bring a different perspective. I hope you see that. I know I feel that when I'm talking with them and the the knowledge that Pete and on Hawk and um, of course I'll gradually give my brother credit too. But no, but um, that they bring to it is really valuable, and they fill in areas that I am not as good at remembering the details of. So I'm very grateful to both of them and their talents and their commitment. Like we wouldn't be anywhere without them. You know, our team. Everything that we do in our decision making really comes from the standpoint of a fan. Like we love this music, we love this scene. We wish there were enough hours in the days of our lives to be able to get it all out at once, but we're being strategic in what we select to try to tell this broader macro story of the way that musicians are listening to one another, the way they're sharing ideas, the way that this fabric of the San Francisco scene, of which, you know, obviously our, our protagonist is Bear, who is by twists of fate and cosmic miracle at the center of all of these amazing moments and happen to have tape running at the same time. I think that the the other thing, you know, we've really tried to make sure that we do as we go along through these releases is to really make sure that we are partnering with the artists through the releases because we're very passionate. This is not a case where somebody just walks into the venue, brings a, a hidden microphone and clicks play on his you know, hidden recorder. These were all made in an open and transparent fashion with artist buy-in. That's one of the reasons it takes us time to move forward is, is this careful selection of what is in the archive and how we tell the, the story of that diversity and cross-pollination, but also in being respectful and taking time to develop relationships in every way that we can, knowing that that will sometimes be easier than others and sometimes it's more difficult than others and to be respectful of that and and, and give that the time it's due so that's part of the narrative of, of building towards these 10 releases um and how the things progress and, and how we move forward yeah everything that we have is initially recorded by permission none of it gets released without their approval and all of it reflects bears production value as the person responsible in many cases for the mix we really knew that we had a, a, a bit of an uphill battle in the beginning to really establish ourselves and the way that we do business and the way that we handle the archive and handle our negotiations with the artists and the quality of the recordings that we put forward. And I think now, 10 years in, that's one of the things we have really managed to establish well. And hopefully that's inspired some other people to think about their archives in a different way. But as a nonprofit archive, you know, we... We sort of stand, I'd like to think that we kind of stand alone and we are setting a leading practice on how to do this. We're all volunteer. People often ask things like, well, who's in charge of the Housley Stanley Foundation? 
nobody is and everybody is. And it is as close to a collective as any organization that I've ever been a part of. You know, Bear was really self-aware that when he was working in music, he was really passionate about recording those performances and even rehearsals and talked with artists and said, hey, we should be recording this so that we can all learn from it, right? We can listen to ourselves and figure out what we're doing right and what we still need to work on. So that was part of how he got into recording. It wasn't so much, and that's why we call why it's his sonic journals, because he said it was like his audio diaries and it was a way to learn from what they were doing. So, you know, when you go through the archive, you have the warts and all sort of, right? You have those nights that are absolutely amazing. And you have some in there that are not as amazing. And, you know, the tape runs it out or he doesn't switch it on time because he doesn't know that band. But that was part of the process too, was just this learning and evolution. And hopefully the people can hear some of that evolution um, through time in the archive as we release it. And that's one of the other great things about getting into the home stretch of transferring all the reels is that we get to find oh, wait a minute, There's half this reel is something else that wasn't on the box. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, even towards the missing reel ones, like Jack and Yorma was a bit like that when we put out the Before We Were Them. Initially, we only found one reel, and so we didn't have more, and we didn't really have enough. It was really good, but we didn't really have enough. And um, and then the magic and, what is it, the magic and mayhem of bears banana boxes right and the tapes sometimes aren't always in the right cases or they're mislabeled the tapes got moved around a bit in early years i think and bear was pragmatic so uh he went out and found the the nice sturdy boxes that fit the tapes well and uh there's a pretty good agricultural uh industry in northern california so there's a lot of uh, heavy duty fruit boxes around. And so, uh, you know, it wasn't that bear was eating a lot of bananas, that's for sure. <laughs> but, you know, the uh, the heavy duty fruit boxes uh, were uh, a good solution to, you know, getting, keeping these things uh, organized. Thankfully, another tape did come up, <laughs> surfaced out of the boxes. And we were able to do that beautiful release. So. And it was funny because I we would go back to the Grateful Dead's vault in this high tech fire suppression system with the, you know all the the gizmos uh, you know the, to protect the tapes and keep the temperature and humidity everything very stable and they're still in the banana <laughs> boxes um, they're still in the banana boxes actually <laughs> but they, you know it's, it's not just bananas it's uh, there's some apples and and pears and. <laughs> You know, looking back at 10 years as being a volunteer-run organization that is is getting some notice, which is fantastic. We've outlasted already <laughs> how many independent record labels that have popped up and fizzled out. It, I, I go back to where we started. I mean, the collective works in this case. I don't want to get hippy-dippy, but what we have truly honors the unique talents that each member of the editorial team brings to the projects and I'm there if there's one thing I'm certain of that with all four of us engaged we're going to get it right the story's going to get told right possibly not right now but right <laughs> amen <laughs> Thank you.
there are discoveries you know that we still that we still have